around the galaxy comes the world's greatest comic book fans all in one terrific podcast. It's the Power Cosmic Podcast. With your host with the most, the man who puts on Terrific Con, the world's greatest comic con every August at the Mohegan Sun in Uncasville, Connecticut, Mitch Halleck. Joining Mitch each week will be an assembly of his terrific super friends. Join them as they talk about comic books, movies, and more. It's the Power Cosmic Podcast. Power Cosmic Podcast. All right, everybody. This is your old pal Mitch Halleck here. And today I'm joined by a longtime what I would call friend, I hope, uh, Mr. Ryder Wyndham, if that name is familiar to you, because he, I do believe, holds the record for probably the most uh, Star Wars books or books about Star Wars ever written. He can clarify that in a second or so. He's also done work about Indiana Jones, but one of the things I find most intriguing about my friend Ryder is for several years he worked as an editor uh, over at uh, Fantagraphics and at Dark Horse Comics too, and he worked on many licensed uh, books, everything from Aliens to Predator to Star Wars and all that. And I, as a lifelong comic book reader going on almost 50 years, that's one thing I've never really understood. And I know what a writer does. I know what the artist does. I know what a letterer does, a colorist. But when it comes to the murky world of editorship, if that's a term, I've always been confused and maybe a little foggy in exactly what they do and depends on the person. So the other day I was talking to writer and I said, would you mind coming on the podcast and just giving me some insight on what it is an editor does in his point of view? So anyway, that's my introduction to today's segment. Here he is all the way from Rhode Island, the one of the many islands here in the Northeast, uh, Mr. Ryder Wyndham. Hello, Ryder. Hello, Mitch. And at the risk of sounding a like a suck-up at the outstart, I do consider you a friend. Okay, good. You've I didn't... always been a great pal. Thank you. Now, you got that 20 bucks you owe me or what, buddy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Now, let's just start off real quick. Like, I know who you are because you tell me who you are. But uh, some folks out there that might have seen your name, uh, did I miss something there? How long have you been working in the comic field? Um, I... Uh, let's see. I, I started working at Fantagraphics in 1990, and I was there for um, uh, about a year and a half. And then I worked at Dark Horse Comics from 1992 to 1995. But when you say I, you worked at Fantagraphics, did you go there? Because I know you have a background in graphic design and in art, did, right. you, did you go there well, to be an artist, or what was the, no. well, the it's funny, position? Like how, yeah, how, how I broke into it uh, was, um, uh, let's see, it was in 1990. I, 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 my, my, my background in college, I, I worked, as, I, I studied and uh, got a major in graphic design and illustration. Right. And uh, I went to South, what is now, or Southeastern Massachusetts, now UMass Dartmouth. And uh, I wound up working uh, uh, as a designer for a while, and for at a studio. Then I was freelancing, and it was I was freelancing in 1990, and I had a um, it was a big job that was lined up that was going to 
essentially I was I knew I'd be busy for two solid months right. and I was turning down assignments so I could take this big assignment and the big assignment fell through and I was suddenly I mean I was scrambling to find some sort of work to do and I decided uh, because I did I, I thought well I've got some time I have a little money in the bank and I spent about I, I decided to spend a month working on my own comic book and I, I, I mean I had a story in mind, and I penciled it, inked it, or I lettered it, and I think I get, did about 22 pages of material. Um, I've, I've made photocopies. I sent them off to several publishers, uh, and the one thing they all had in common was that they published creator-owned comics, right. So, and it was including Fantagraphics books, and I was very surprised when, when just within just like a couple of weeks, I, I heard back after I sent out the, the, the mailings, uh, I got responses from I, I, at least three, maybe, four, I mean, over, like later I heard from others, but I, I mean, altogether, I think there were about you know, five different publishers that were interested in publishing it in my, 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 my comic, including Fantagraphics, and instead of me getting a really swelled head about it, my take on the situation was they're really desperate because wow. object, well, what, objectively, what, what, well, objectively, I just thought, um, yeah, I, you know, I had the chutzpah to put together a comic, but it could have been better. I mean, yeah. I, I knew it was, there were things about it, but I, I just thought, well, you know, I'll put it out there. I'll see, you know, if there's any nibbles. What kind of comic was it? A superhero, a science fiction? It was a, it was a post-apocalyptic adventure story involving a little boy and a robot bear who are making their way across a very barren wasteland. Was this before that movie AI? Because that sounds a lot yeah, like Yeah, it that. was. And you know, it, it's, you know, it's, fun, it's funny, there's, like over the years, I mean, there's been a few things that, that I saw where I thought, huh, that's interesting. I mean, like a, a significant difference art-wise was that, I mean, that what, my little boy was much more of a little boy, and the it, 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 I'd say you could almost liken it to Calvin and Hobbes, right. <laughs> but it, but with you know maybe crossed with a boy and his dog, yeah. but something that that uh, the uh, in the artwork or even my selection or my, my idea for doing this post-apocalyptic story was I wasn't very good with drawing perspective, so I thought well if I do a lot of you know, sort of Rocky landscapes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can hide it. Yeah. I, I was, I was, so I, would, I, I knew when I was going into it that I was working with my own limitations. So I, I w- w- was at the outset sort of disappointed with it. What happened was uh, I, Gary Groth, um, one of the co-founders at Fanographics, he contacted me. He was interested in publishing. But while we were talking about uh, talking with the phone, swapping mail. I also was reading the Comics Journal, the, the magazine of news and criticism about the right, comic right, industry, right. which uh, Fantagraphics published and found out from an ad that they were looking for an editor-in-chief for Eros Comics and Monster Comics, which they had... I think that when I was reading this, maybe the first issues were just about to ship. And I thought... Um, I, I thought I, I, I decided to apply for the job. I, I, I was at the time I was living in Providence. Uh-huh. 
Rhode Island, and I, I knew that if I got the job, it would mean moving to Seattle, and I just thought, what an adventure that would be. My, my job application, I did it, I think it was, I, I, did, I drew it as a comic. I mean, I, I, instead of sending a written letter of application, I drew a comic format application, and from what I heard, it, that, that was what, <laughs> you know, what, you what know, landed me the job. And you know what's so funny? I did the same exact thing for my DC Comics job. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. I, I, I had my resume, and I would send the cover. Back in the old days, you'd do the fax. So I'd send the fax with the cover letter and then just the basic resume. And, you you know, you just want to stand out. So I remember illustrating a, a little story about two aliens um, that their job was to demolish planets to make way for, like, a super highway or space highway. And they came to the Earth. And one guy couldn't read the map too well, so he presses a button, he blows up the earth, and then the other alien says, oh, geez, you had it upside down, so they flip it around, and they say, uh-oh, that was the wrong planet, and the whole thing was, you know, don't hire inferior graphic design to put your most important message out there, hire Mitch Halleck, and it was all about, you know, why I should be hired, because if I did the, the graphic on the map, it would have been right, and... uh that got me a phone call like many times. It was weird. I'd fax it and then like within 10, 20 minutes I'd get a call because it would just probably be sitting there on the fax tray and somebody yeah. would walk by and stop and look at it and go, what's that about? Or then I would do like David Letterman top 10 reasons why you should hire Mitch Halleck and I would just draw that like Letterman holding up a list and stuff. So yeah, so see, we we we, we before the internet, you had to be creative, man. To oh stand yeah, out. well even, it's funny, you know, I, over the years I've, I've helped friends write resume yep, and I don't, I don't remember that, how yeah. that started but that you know someone would be saying oh I'm struggling with my resume right, and, oh, right, I'll right. have a crack at it and uh, what, I, what I've always been I think pretty good at is just reading something and saying look this sounds wishy-washy like <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think that you would be really great if you hired me because these are the things I, yeah. Yeah, I could probably offer it's like no you have to make it sound like Hire me, damn it! Yeah, no, yeah, like, you, you, yeah. yeah. Don't make so, a mistake again. Right. If you're you're missing yeah. out if you don't hire me. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. You got to stand out. I'm always surprised when people just yeah, they could be great, but when they go to talk about themselves, they don't really do a good job about it. It's very like, eh, okay, I did this and that, you know, whatever. So, mm -hmm. yep. so there, so there. So anyway, you get the job, you go out to Seattle. That must have been yes. something. And uh -huh. uh, you never went away from home or school or anything like that? No, actually, I mean, I, I sort of, well, I always, in college, I, I stayed in Rhode Island and was, right. so, so, so that I, So this no, was a like, big, big, bold venture, so, you know, how it, old are you at was, this time, like 23 or so? No, I, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, gosh, I think I was, oh, I should be able to do this. I you guess should I do the math, about, yeah, you graduated, yeah. Uh, 20, yeah. 26, I think. Okay, all right. And, so you uh, go out there, and and how was the, what were the offices like? Because you know, uh, I always imagine like a bunch of cubicles and wild and wacky guys because they're that's their fun job. They make funny books and stuff. But is it like that, or is it pretty much like every other office you see on TV? Or? Well, well, Fantagraphics. Um, I was surprised because I, I mean I I'd see the books. That they published, uh, you know, these hardcover collected editions yeah. of newspaper comic reprints and everything. And I guess I, I just thought I'd arrive and it would be sort of uh, maybe not unlike the design studio where I'd worked, where everything was kind of neat and in its place and, you know, where to find things. And 
Fantagraphics um, was not in a an office building. It was in a house that really? had been converted into offices, and it was just. Um, uh, I mean, to, to say that it was like what kind of a mess is an understatement. I mean, it was just just piles of boxes and papers and books and things. Well, you said it was in a house. Did they? Did the owner live in that house too? No, uh, Gary Groth. Um, and you know, I, I believe Gary Groth and Kim Thompson, the founders yeah. of uh, Fantagraphics, I believe they bought, they co-owned the, the building. Okay. So it was in a sort of commercial residential area, and um, what there was a good-sized parking lot out back. So mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, you, it, it seemed. Uh, but but I guess prior to their moving in, I think it had been a house. There were still sort of odd touches, like really ratty old shag carpeting and plastic beaded curtains in the doorways. Oh, and it it looked like, like a, a hippie hangout from the 70s. It looked like it had been at some yeah. point, maybe, yeah. So, um, but I... Uh, well, was it laxed? I mean, did you just wear t-shirts and jeans there? You didn't wear a shirt and tie. <laughs> uh, did you wear it, clothes there? I, I was I, I was kind of a jerk in, the, in that I, I mean I saw that everybody else in the office was kind of um, casual oh what casual so I, I uh, and, and it was also maybe how to put this I all right I, I wore a tie yeah, I, I mean, I mean I, you're I'm, I'm with you we're from New England okay. we're conservative yeah, but, but, but it was kind of ridiculous but part of it was uh, I mean I I hadn't been there for very long when a couple of employees said to me kind of ganged up on me and they said, Ryder, you seem like a nice guy, yeah. but truth is, we really wish you weren't here because of the stuff that you're editing, specifically the Eros comics. No, and and I thought, well, that's that's kind of, you know, gee, you know, it's not like I chose, I didn't create Eros comics. Yeah, and for people that don't know what that is, that's an adult... It was an adult, imp- yeah. A, and, an adult uh, imprint that had sexually print. explicit stories... Totally. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, just so but, people but that, know. Yeah. But what happened, I mean, that, that uh, uh, as I understand the history of it all, uh, the Fanographics have been losing money for a while on doing, I mean, they're doing these incredible reprints and taking chances on publishing creator-owned comics, and they were doing great work, but they were losing money, and I believe it was Gary Groth who just saw things like Howard Chaikin's Black Kiss and thought maybe, you know, it's like this that, that comic made a lot of money. Maybe we should be doing something like that. Maybe we should do, be doing a bunch of something like that. And so my attitude going into it was, I mean, a, a couple of the editors said to me, you might consider using, you should probably use a, a pseudonym. And just you know, and I and I said, you know, I'm going to use my own name. Right. Most people think Ryder Wyndham is a pseudonym. Anyway. They do, yeah. I always think of a as a you rental know? truck company in a hotel. <laughs> right, but I but I, I also I, I said I'm I'm also going to um, what I I, 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 I I this will sound a little silly, but I, I said I'm only going to put my name on comics that have consenting adult characters in, right. in them, and. Uh, the, which may sound like, well, that sounds sensible, but the fact was some of the comics, I mean, just the first batch of comics that Eros had released before I came on, some of them, I, 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 when I read them, I thought, 
I wouldn't even, I, it's, I wouldn't put my name on it. And um, I think it was, I, I forget who it was, someone, I mean, one of, somebody at the office said, well, you could, maybe you could edit something like that, but you could use a pseudonym. And I said, no, I won't touch it. I won't, you know, if it's like... Uh, wow, it was, I, I never read any of these books. They were really that out there? There was, there were a couple that I'd say were, like, like, the, the, some of the early issues, there were things like rape and mutilation. Oh, jeez. And, uh... So these they, are like underground comics? I mean, these aren't your main... St- are these the books, like, you would hear on the news, like, a, a shop would be selling them, and then they would get raided yeah. by some, like, moral... Yeah, that was pretty much it. I yeah. mean, but, but, that, no, but, but then, I, again, I mean, yeah, there was some underground stuff, but the majority of it was, was uh... Oh, gosh, like, foreign imports. I mean, Italian and French... Oh, okay, so they were just reprinting foreign materials. Yeah, oh, yeah okay. there were, I mean, there were... There were So you're, well, you're editing, yeah, but what is there to edit when you're doing reprints? You really just, I mean, you don't have much to do. The book's already been done and created at that point, In right? some cases, it was, we were doing, uh, yeah, I mean, well, if it, if, if, well, actually, all right, funny story about that. The, the first time I saw my name in print on a comic, uh, I, uh, I believe it was the, the graphic designer in the office, Jim Blanchard, plunked uh-huh. a bunch of comp copies on my desk and he said here yeah i'd only been there maybe a month or so okay and he said uh, maybe two months and he said oh you know here here are your here here's your comps and i looked at it and it was the kinky hook by eric stanton and Hmm. which and these were reprints of bondage comics oh boy there you go 1960s and i looked in the inside cover and I saw it edited by Ryder Wyndham and I said, Jim, I've never seen this comic before, yeah, yeah. which was absolutely true. I mean, I think that so, someone, you know, in the, I don't know who, in the design or production, somebody just figured like, oh, Ryder is editing the Arrows comics, so we put his name on these titles. And so, yeah, the first time I saw my name in print, it was on a comic I had, I'd never touched and I'd right, never right. seen it. So, so, I mean, some of the foreign titles were being translated for the first time so that I was editing the translations. Mm-hmm. Um, but my, I mean, the, the main directive that I, I, that I was, that Gary Groth gave me was, we want you to generate product, which meant that um, a lot, I mean, good gosh, lots of uh, creator, comics creators were sending in unsolicited submissions of uh-huh. you know here's my comic would you be interested in publishing it and well they were uh, doing and, what you uh, did basically yeah yeah I, I mean so so it was but but uh for monster as well i mean we were getting science fiction and horror proposals yeah. uh, were um, any of them really good i mean did you see them and say wow this is actually really well done because uh, not yeah. everything is great we we know that yeah i mean it's it's uh I mean, but I, I guess I should say more specifically, you know, great, great for maybe what it was or great for. <laughs> oh, OK. You well, know, because I'll look at those old 60s and 50s, you know, sci-fi comics and mm-hmm. they were like two or three pages long. But, you know, they're not the it's not war and peace. It's kind of like uh, Boomba, the 
the lightning bolt from Mars, and it's just mm-hmm. some like I don't know what a couple panels and some wacky Twilight Zone wannabe, and it's right. over with. Is that what these were like? Just, just uh, uh, well, like a I poor mean, man's Rod, Rod Serling story or something. Well, there was. I mean, some people were do. I mean, well, there were some anthology or short stories or one shots, but uh, some artists were pitching. Say like a, a three or four issue series, or they had yeah. enough material so that it, I mean it, it really varied. Yeah, but um, weren't you so? But okay, now this is going to get into the whole topic about the editor. So, are you like the barometer of good taste? I mean, you didn't you didn't take every sample that came in through or solicitation, I did not. <laughs> but yeah, but no. were you the gatekeeper? Were you the one that said, "Hey, this meets my aesthetic. This meets yeah. my uh, story." You know. Uh, I'm interested and intrigued. I think other right. people will be. Were you the guy they had to please to get the thing published? Yes. I mean, or at least it would start with me. And then if I thought the material had merit, yeah. I would show it to um, Gary Gross right. and Kim Thompson and let them see. Well, they were the publisher, right? Yeah. Okay. So, and, but I'll, I mean, I'll give you, I'll give you a, like, it's kind of a funny and sort of a unique example here an unsolicited um proposal came in for a comic called karate girl okay and the artist was in japan and uh i you know if i remember right i i don't know that it was originally pitched as a series or but but essentially there, there was what appeared to be i, I mean it, it had never been published before i mean yeah. if, if it was just but but uh the, the artist had also provided, um, what, uh, the speech balloons were all in English, but it was in a very fractured translation somehow, oh, okay. so that a lot of it, and it's like, I, I, um, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to even repeat, <laughs> I mean, because it was just sort of funny things, like, a, oh, um, uh, or just like comments about anatomy, where you read them and you just laugh because you realize, okay, I guess I know what he's trying to say. Or what <laughs> right, he's trying right. to say but it's oh, like so he was translated it himself into what yeah, he thought yeah. English? So, okay. so, so what happened was I, I showed the pages to <laughs> Gary Groth, right. Karate Girl, and he said, yeah, sure, this, you know, it's like the, this looks like it's pretty well drawn. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, so, but what happened was um, I, I sent instructions and notes back to the artist and, and said, okay, I've read through it. It's really great. We'd like to do it. But um, here, here, but I've, I've included, I, I, I typed up page for page revisions for um, the dialogue. For the dialogue. Yeah. So it was maybe, I don't know, like a month or so later, revised pages come in, but the artist had taken all of my instructions as suggestions. Uh-huh. And what he turned in was actually even more fractured. Really? Oh, and, so he and, redid the uh, whole thing. Trying yeah, he, re, to he relettered the whole thing, but it, but but so so what happened was I, I but but I start reading it, and at first I'm thinking, oh, for gosh sakes, like yeah. do I relettered this thing? But then as I read it, I thought I, I mean I just started laughing because some of this, I mean, just it was an unintentional comedy thing where right. I thought this is actually kind of funny because it, it's almost like. And you know, forgive me. It's like it's like watching a really badly dubbed 
foreign movie right. where you, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you're, yeah. you're watching it and you just crack up because the dubbing goes like, oh, I, I'm guessing they said something else. So without running it by anybody else, I decided that the first issue should just go out that way. And yeah. when, when the comic, um, after it shipped, Gary Groth, uh, in like a rare moment of calling me into his office, like, what the hell? What's yeah. going on? What were you? Th- what? I, you know, I read this and I, and I said, hang on, hang on. Just, I said, Here, here's what happened. Right. And I explained it to him. And he's, he's like, huh, maybe. So I leave the office and he starts reading it again. And that's when I hear him just laughing his yeah. head off. Yeah, 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 he, yeah, he yeah. realized, okay, once you, once you get the fact that it's like, okay, I mean, if, if and, and, and I also thought too, I didn't. I, I suppose I could have, what, inserted an explanation at the beginning of the comic that, that right. said, Ryder Wyndham tried to edit his comic book, <laughs> but that I thought, no, just, just, just let it, let's, well, let it, it go. You know, it, it, it's, you know. Kind of, it's kind of like the movie uh, that came out a couple years ago, this fellow that I went to school with named Michael J. White. He's an actor. He made a movie called Black Dynamite, which was a takeoff of all the 70s black exploitation movies, but it was done like low budget, but it was intentional. So they would have like the boom mic come in, you know, the car wasn't in park, it would roll away, the actors would miss their cues or mess up their dialogue, but it was done intentionally. So it was funny because you're watching a movie that's almost like a parody of these other things. So like you said, I pick up that book and go, oh, this is supposed to be a badly translated action uh, like one of those uh, kung fu movies that would be on on Saturday afternoons on the local TV channels here or something like that. Right, right. But, but it wasn't done that, it was just by happenstance this happened. It was kind of, yeah, uh, like, what? Um, but you okay. created a weird genre in a way. You created... <laughs> You know, Unintentionally, bad kung fu theater or something in comics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think I think I know there were there were. Did it sell well though? I mean, that's the big. Yeah, oh, it, so it, it did. Sold. Yeah. But were people in on the joke, or they didn't get it? They would read it and go, "Wow, this is this is a comedy. This is funny." I unintentionally. I, I, I really don't know. I mean, you know, it seemed like uh, a lot of the the the, the reader mail that yeah. I used to get was from. Prisons. Are you serious? Yeah, there were a lot of, lot of, and and mostly it was uh, guys in prison who were asking uh, for free copies of the comic. Oh, okay, okay. And um, but I, yeah. It's, and again, this is all pre-internet days. This is still when people would mail a letter. This, this there was would be no 19, email. Yeah, yeah. nineteen ninety through uh, mid nineteen ninety two. We we yeah. we when I worked at direct mail, we would do something called a BRC card which is you, they would pre-postage paid, so you'd put it inside the catalog so if people had comments, they could just write it and drop it in the mail, and then the cards would come back and we'd sort through them and you'd, you'd write down what people had to say. And I'd say like 90% of them came from prisons because these guys would get catalogs and they had this little way of you know getting word to the outside so they would write stuff and they would drop it in the mail and the mailman yep. would have yep. to deliver. So yeah, I know what you're saying because we used to get some unusual uh, comments from people, and then you go to look at the address, and you're like, "Oh, it's a guy in prison." There you go. Interesting. Well, hey, I, you know, I, I, I'm just I'm thinking though it's about that's a whole book we just came up with, letters from prison. Well, that'd be excellent. Yeah, yeah. I, the one, the, one <laughs> the comic that, in hindsight, was um, what sort of influential as far as shaping me as yeah. an editor was. 
But no, go back uh, for a minute to Karate Girl. What? So what yeah. was selling that book? See, this is again another curious uh, uh, notion I have when it comes to comic books. Was the art selling that book? Because obviously, the... I'd say so. Yeah, I mean, it, it was definitely this this manga style. Oh, okay. That, yeah, or, or kind of more anime style. Yeah, that yeah, 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 yeah. Was pretty, you know, it was, it was pretty good. I thought. Well, that's for, that's the thing because yeah. I'm always amazed by that because I'll look through books if the art is fantastic. Right. I'll pick it up because good art makes glosses over a lot of bad writing most of the time because you're just like looking at the images and go, wow, that's really well done. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that you know some re- readers at the time, pre-internet adult comic books, you know, were were they reading them? I don't know. I, they were. I knew they were buying them. So, uh, yeah, it it, it, it it sold well, and I, I'd say the art was 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 pretty good for what it was. So well, okay, no, like I said, you were a guy that went to school for art, and you know, you have an eye for it. And, same here. I always was like, oh, wow, look, I'm going to pick that up. I'll spend the money because that's well done. Right, right. A great story can't save bad art, in my mind. Um, I mean, you really have to get over some of that stuff. But, you know, I, 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 I had, there, there, I, I'd say there are, no, I can think of exceptions, but I'm, I'm, I'm leery of naming names. Yeah, no, no, I, and I wouldn't put you yeah, on the spot. Some, there, there are some uh, writer artists who, I mean, you know, solo artists where, when I look at their work, I think, gosh, that's just so unappealing to the eye. Right. And then I start reading it, and I think, you know, this is actually more thought out than I'm, I was giving it credit for. Right. And so, I mean, there, there are situations. I mean, I'd rather read something like that than, say, you know, a really slick-looking comic that doesn't really do anything. Do anything, yeah. Comic. No, I hear yeah. you, too. There, there's pros and cons. But I, I cut you off uh, when you were saying what was the editorial yeah. job that really well, defined you as an editor. Well, the, the thing, I mean, the, the one, you can read books about how to draw comics, even how to write comics. There's, I, I don't know of any book about how to edit comics, and nobody... Um, I don't recall anybody even really giving pointers. It was mostly just about, you know, you know well, you have to, you know, proofread yeah. the script and you have to get this thing into production on time. But, okay, there was, uh, Gary Groth uh, hired uh, Jim Woodring and artist uh, Francisco Solano Lopez to do a comic book adaptation of Todd Browning's movie Freaks. Mm-hmm. It, this was, it was officially licensed, I think, at Turner, or, uh, the, or the Turner Network, or Turner Movies held the rights. So it was, all, it was officially licensed, and I remember at the time just thinking, that's really an interesting combo, because I, 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 I was familiar with Jim Wittring's work on his, uh, his own, his creator-owned comics, and I knew Francisco Solano Lopez's work because he, uh, we've done some, um, specifically his erotic work. He did a, book, a series called Young Witches, which was, uh, which Eros Comics uh, released in English translations. And uh, so Jim delivered his script, and I believe that Solano, Solano Lopez was uh, like faxing penciled pages to me. And... There was this one sequence that involved uh, what 
the freaks are part of a traveling Circus. carnival show. Yeah, right. And the, so there's a, the, and they they uh, travel in these wagons or, yeah, or caravans. Caravans. Yeah. And there was a sequence where that Jim wrote where uh, two characters are, are having a conversation in one caravan, and I guess a, there's a, a subsequent panel which has a caption later, just mm-hmm. you know, a caption to, to, because there's a time change and a place change. Now it's two other characters having a conversation in a different caravan. And I think the thing that surprised me about the caption was that it was the first and only one in that particular issue, and maybe the only, I mean, uh, it just sort of popped out at me. And I, I, I it's, it's kind of, um, what, I don't remember that I'd given a lot of thought to captions before that moment, but um, I came to think of them, some, someone else referred to them as a desperation device. A caption is a desperation device. Oh, really? Specifically, what is like, you know, something like later, back at the Batcave, and you think, well, you know, if you show the interior of the Batcave, do you really need that? To show that little, like, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a visual I mean, like, thing, yeah. It's sort of, and it's, it's an, an intrusion from the narrator that, to me, it, I mean, it's just, it's just it's just sort of like, I don't know, it's like, a, it, it's an intrusion the, the same way if you're watching a movie, if you hear a voiceover that kicks in, it can kind of yank you out of the story. Right, right. Now, and, okay, I can see, okay, like, so, I, so, no, no so I was going to say, so things like Meanwhile are fine because they're just trying to say that at the same time the bad guy's breaking into a house, the the you know the heroes down the road. So that's not that's not a big distraction. I find, mean, yeah. I'm, I find meanwhile just as distracting to me. It's it's like walking into a room and seeing a sign on the wall that says meanwhile. It's, it's like who put that there? Well, I mean, but Somebody, I would say they're trying to convey because they can't do time. But they can because you can do things like let's say a character um, in uh, an apartment building is having a conversation. Okay and. Uh, you, uh, instead of ending his sentence in that apartment building, you, mm-hmm. it's like he, there's an ellipsis so that you have a caption that carries over into the next panel. Which yeah, is that's your transition. Yeah. So it's like it somehow conveys that this, that dialogue, that his line, you know, he's speaking from another place. And meanwhile, in this other location, this right. is going on. So that's a case where it's like it's a caption, but it's using dialogue instead of omniscient narration. Okay. So I mean, it, it conveys meanwhile without using the word meanwhile. And to me, it's, it's, it's like that's a more subtle device, or yeah, subtle yeah, desperation yeah. device. So when I, yeah, and so I was looking at Freaks and I just realized, huh, okay, if we, if, if these two panels were redrawn so that we, we, we see the two characters are having a conversation in a caravan, but what if, okay, if they're sitting by a window and we see these two other characters approaching from outside. Yeah. And then in the next panel, we redraw it. So we see um, uh, an exterior view of the caravan. The two car- two people are walking by outside. and But now we can see a window with silhouettes with the two figures who are inside. And it was just this transition. Uh-huh. And I, when I suggested it, I thought... I hope they're not going to think that I'm like off my rocker for suggesting this. Right. But, I mean, J- J- Jim and um, Solano Lopez, they, like, they saw and they said, no, no, that, you're right. That, that, that works better. That works like it's 
a smoother transition. You're telling the story. You're letting the characters and their actions and their dialogue propel the story without any sort of interruption that way. So yeah, but see, well, but see, you're the editor on that now. But isn't most of the time the editor would already get the finished drawing? I mean, you they had to go back and redraw those panels for your suggestion. How did that well, happen? I mean, how, how collaborative? Because I always yeah. imagine, like I said, I've talked to you before. Sometimes I'm confused. Does an editor is he more like a production manager, just making sure everybody meets their deadlines and gets the book to the printers on time, or? Is it like a movie director on a set where he tells the actor, okay, come in through that door and slam the door so we know that you're upset about something, and then the right. actor comes in and does what the director tells him to do? See, we're, or should the writer have written a slam, you know, like a sound effect so you know that the door was being slammed? I mean, who's in control of the, the storytelling is what I was always a little iffy on because I'd read a comic and say it was Stanley or Roy Thomas and they would write all these dialogue boxes like the hero stood there defeated by the villain he knew this day would haunt him forever and he made a solemn vow to defend the weak and all that so you're hearing all this narrative you're like okay that's not going to be conveyed in an image if you just see a guy standing there watching the sunset it's a lot of the writer or the editor I don't know who's putting that dialogue in but would an editor step in and said, hey, man, you got too much dialogue here. Let the artist do his job and maybe, you know, show some image that conveys the same message. I mean, who steps over the line? What, where are your boundaries at that point? Or is it just depends on the editor and the company? That's my confusion. I, I, I think it, it's, not, it's not just that it depends on the editor. It depends on the project. And, you know, certainly if it's a creator-owned comic, and I'll, I'll give an, as an example, say, uh, uh, maybe too easy an example, Mike Mignola's Hellboy. Yeah. Where, I mean, Mike is an incredibly talented graphic storyteller. And when he, his pencils and his, the clarity of, of, of uh, what the action and the progression that you, you know, you can see, you, you can see how things are where, where things are going. If if um, what if uh, now see I, I never I never edited Hellboy. I I I, I, I don't know say about uh, like the placement of speech balloons. But it, I mean, say even with a creator-owned comic, I, I I trust that what Mike would probably you know, indicate. You know, he certainly would leave space for the balloons. He might even pencil them in to indicate where speech balloons would go. Right. And, but that, from what, as, a, as an editor, what I look for, it, it, it's, uh, it's things like, um, oh gosh, just like, okay, you know, how, does, how do these images, as well as the speech balloons, flow from left to right and top to bottom? Now, uh, and if I see something where I think, okay, I, I, um, this, I, I guess I sh- that speech balloon... We're supposed to read that one first. We need to do something if that one's, you know, because I, if you've ever read a comic yeah. and you wondered, is that the back of some guy's head or right. is that a tree? And it, or if you wondered, was that, oh, I guess I was supposed to read this balloon first. My mistake. Okay, that's not your mistake. Somebody screwed up. <laughs> somebody was lazy. Somebody, somebody wasn't thinking about, 
you know, what is the flow of this thing? And so, um, so as you know, as, as an editor, yeah, uh, that that's what I would look for would be, um, you know, how to the flow of the book. So you would catch how, that stuff. I edited every single aspect of you know. I, I'd read the script, and while I was reading the script, I'd be trying to sort of you know, sometimes figuring out, okay, uh, how how does this how is this two page spread. You know, how is that final panel? Is that the you know is that going to lead into the next page? Well, or should we well, tweak that? Well, here's a question: Is it depend on yeah. the the ability and the talent of the artist for the sequential storytelling? I mean, you should be able to get the gist of the story by looking at the images. It's like a silent okay. movie. But yeah, I guess I, I guess I guess or just to backtrack. Yeah. To, it's like it's you know some. Um, you know, if, if, if you're talking, if, most of the comics that I, I edited by choice, I, I mean, when I went to uh, Dark Horse Comics, after just a few months, I, I said, you know, please assign me the licensed stuff because I prefer to work on that. I thought, that? I, thought, I thought it was more hands-on. I thought I also had a couple of unfortunate experiences working on creator-owned titles where creators were saying, Things like, um, I mean, I'd say, you know, uh, the way you, you, you know, let's say there's a cartoonist who draws the letter E. He does his own lettering. Right. He draws the letter E where he's got three horizontal strokes and no descender on it. It's, okay. a, it's like a, it's a quirk. Yeah. And you look at it and you think, okay, why, you know, I, why not just put, why not make it a full E? Right. And if I have to listen to a 10-minute rant, it's, you know, it's things like that <laughs> where you think like, ah, uh, you know. Well, did the names to protect the innocent in the story, but it, did that something like that really happen to you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, there were, there were things where, you know, are, you know if, in, if I'd say, uh, you know, I, th- this, uh, you know, c- clearly in this image right here, th- these, th- these two pages, you're using photo reference. On this one, you're not, and it really looks uneven. And if the artist would say, "Well, you know, I'm not. Nobody's going to care." With a creator-owned comic, I can't really, <laughs> you know, get right, too right, much right. into it. But yeah, with yeah. the licensed titles, it's not. It, it's not that I enjoyed bossing people around. It was more, I guess, something about the the challenge of it that. Well, the licensed of- stuff too, because people know in their mind. Like if you're doing Star Wars, for instance, they fans reading that they know what the Millennium Falcon looks like. They know what a Star Destroyer looks like. So you can't fake it and make up right. your own spaceship because somebody will call you on and say that's not what's in the movie. And you're supposed to be telling stories that take place in that universe. They have yeah. to look consistent. So mm-hmm. there is a little bit. I mean, how technical did you get on things like that? Did you did they call you and you say, hey, that's not the right starship, or that doesn't have that many. Uh, crew members aboard that ship it's too small for that did you have to get that minute detail yeah. in there yeah there was there was a lot I mean with, with Star Wars stuff especially um, also with Indiana Jones a yeah. lot of I mean his sort of you know, historic details and things because we just knew it's like if, if you put a certain tank in here and it's the wrong tank in the background somebody's gonna call you on it Exactly. So you, you know, you, you try to, you, you know, it was an, an, an ongoing effort. Oh, no. to, so, so to, what? So, so now is that the editor's job, or is that the artist, or the writer? Who does the research? If you're doing Indiana Jones and the story's set in 1937, and they show, I don't know, the Golden Gate Bridge, because I remember that from Raiders of the Lost Ark. 
He's mm-hmm. flying off to Nepal to go get the, the headpiece of the staff of Ra. And the, right. the shot is the airplane going over the San Francisco Golden Gate Bridge. And I yeah. remember somebody pointing out that in 1936, it wasn't completed yet. So that could not have happened. I'm like, okay, you're getting a little too crazy with that. Most people uh, it wasn't, don't. It, it, you know, I'm not, it's also things like the transatlantic flights were about from out of the Bay Area. I mean, I, re, I remember doing the research when I was writing a novelization for, or junior novelization for Raiders of the right. Lost. There's a lot that's, you know, you realize, oh, that's just, that scene could not have happened, <laughs> you know, at the time. But, you know, it's, it's, uh, you have to, some things you just have to run with it. Yeah, like, yeah, that's what I'm going to say. I mean, you're going to spend hours worried about, you know, if the plane could possibly fly over the Pacific in one flight or just let right. it go. Just, you know, you don't need to know the how it worked, you know. Yeah, the thing, I mean, it, but as far as, you know, just what different, um, I'm trying to think of an example, say, uh, well, how about, like, I, I know Indiana Jones, I would get, like, you know, because I did a lot of Raiders of the Lost Ark fan stuff and website. Sure. You would get people that would get particular about the guns, the weaponry. Oh, Indiana Jones uses a Wembley, not that, not a revolver and not this type of Colt 45. I mean, I'm, I'd be like, okay, it's a gun. Okay, right. script just calls for a gun. Doesn't say if it's a Walther PPK or whatever he had on him. But, I mean, you... Do you even answer those type of letters? Would you respond to that, or you would just go, "Guy, it's a story. Let's just get on to the next <laughs> issue." Actually, well, it's funny. I, uh, um, I, I did not do letter columns very much, and part of it was that. To, I mean, to, uh, what other editors? I, I mean, I uh, how to put this? Other editors enjoyed doing letter columns. Uh, because, and again, this was pre-internet. Yeah, I was going to say, this and, is actual... Yeah, and so it's like, letters. okay, this is the way to engage the readers and let them... And my my own take on it at the time was that, I mean, to say especially with Star Wars comics, I knew how well they were selling without letter columns. Yeah. I knew that... Uh, and I also knew, because, because this is back when, what, uh, you know, a letter would come in, the editors would usually, what, transcribe yeah. the, the, the letters and type up the responses. And, and I thought, okay, I, you know, I don't have, other, maybe others make time to do that. I <laughs> yeah, just yeah. never find the time to, to do that. So well, what, what, what was the original, wasn't the purpose of the original letter page? Because the, when they did uh, mailing back in the 60s or the 50s, I don't know when it was, but they had to have a certain amount of uh, prose or text in there, like two pages to be considered like a, a mailing rate? I think that's how it started. I don't know. I, I've never heard that. I don't know. I don't know, but I just could never understand it. Was was the book too short that month on stories, so they threw a letters page in and I, just to pad I think it? it? I think it, it definitely can allow, what, it's, it's an opportunity to not only connect... Again, this is before the internet, so there was yeah, no way for people to break that wall. So this was like, oh, look. upcoming issues. Yeah. I, yeah, but, uh, but as far as... Um, Oh gosh! But, well, uh, no, but go back. Was that the editor's job to answer the fan mail in the in the comics too? That all fell under that responsibility. Um. Well, unless the editor chose to ignore those messages, which oh, I oh okay. So it wasn't like the publisher said every editor must do the letters page in every comic, and yeah. you, you guys had free reign to do what you wanted when it came to that. You know, I guess I had free reign because no, I don't remember anybody ever you know telling me. Writer, 
you, you know, you have to do letter columns. No, no, no one, no one ever said that I had to. I chose to do letter columns on a few comics because I thought it would be an opportunity to introduce new talent yeah. or also to try. I mean, I thought, that, okay, here's a comic that I think could maybe you know, get. It, it might help get some more readers if we put a letter column in this one. I'll give you an example, okay. too. There, there was an alien comic that came out where it had a sort of a, a religious theme. There was mm-hmm. a, character, a character who was you know, a very devout Christian. Right. And I got a whole mess of uh, letters from a guy who was like writing it. First, first he's writing about like, oh, he really appreciated how this character worked and how this uh, functioned. And he, as a Christian himself, he was pleased to see this and that. And I remember I, I read the, the letter and it's, I, 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 did re, I responded. I, did, I, I, just, I sent him a, a, a quick, I think I sent him a postcard. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just like a hand, you know, thanks for your message. You know, uh, hope, you know, hope you keep enjoying these aliens. Yeah, an acknowledgement that it was received. Yeah. But then this led to, you know, he wrote several letters, the last of which was telling me that, you know, how Aliens comics would be improved by having, like, more Christian uh, characters and things. And I I just wrote back and said, if you're trying to find God in a comic that's about Aliens. aliens that are trying to kill people, you're probably looking in the wrong place. You know, it's like, I'm not, I can't, you know, I'm not, this is it. You know, it's like, I don't, I don't have an agenda except that my, you know, what my, my job is to make sure that these comics, um, what are entertaining and that they, they, and and I hope they sell well, you know, but, but, you know, certain production values and whatnot. But, but I thought, no, there's no, you know, it's like, if I, I can't, just because this one guy was like really saying you have to do more of these, it's like no, actually, I, I don't even have to read any more of your letters. You know? <laughs> okay. So well, it's, no, it's, well, and, and, and here's the challenge because you worked on so many licensed books, like Dark Horse uh, had, they had they, everybody's license. They had Star Wars, they had Alien, they had Predator, they had RoboCop, I think, and Time Cop, and all that stuff. Was uh, did did you have to serve two masters? Did you have to appease the uh, movie companies too? Yeah. Oh sure. I mean, it's. I, I'd say I'd had like, and with them, maybe first and foremost. Yeah. Um, that that yeah. They they've um, you know Lucasfilm. Lucasfilm would give a directive, and uh, that was if if Lucasfilm gave a directive. And as an example, uh, well, well, would, how would they get it? Would you give them the script before you even started drawing it? I mean, you no, wouldn't no. go through the whole exercise of. Writing and drawing the book, and then Lucasfilm saw it. Would no, you? This is, as an example, I mean, Dark uh, Dark Horse had was publishing when I started working at Dark Horse. They were already publishing their first Star Wars series, which was Dark Empire. Right, right. And uh, uh, T- Tom Veach and Cam and Kennedy. Cam Kennedy. Yeah. Right. Yep. And so I. Uh, I, I, you know, I can't remember. I think that maybe the final issue was had yet to ship or was about to ship. That Lucasfilm gave the directive. They wanted to see droids. They wanted to see something lighter. They wanted to see something that was family friendly. That was less dark. They wanted right. something more fun. And 
that, uh, uh, but then it was like this matter of, um, uh, what, the, the head of publishing, Lucasfilm, she had ideas for what the stories should be like, and um, I, that some, I mean, I, I, I was working with a, a, another Dark Horse editor, Dan Forsland, and we just, I mean, we thought, you know, uh, uh, Lucy Wilson at, at uh, yeah, she was at, she was the, the um, head of the, the publishing division at, at Lucasfilm Licensing. And she, I mean, I, like one of her ideas, she said, oh, I think it would be great if the droids lived in a town called Droidburg. And Is that like Otisburg? She, well, she was thinking like Duckburg, you know, so oh, okay. because, because she also knew that George Lucas was a big fan of the Carl Barks Duck comics. And who isn't? I mean, they're, yeah, you know, yeah. they're, I, I, I love those comics. But Dan Forsland and I were like, you know, Star Wars fans will eat us alive if we, you know, the, the, the droids are appliances. Yeah. That, you know, as far as like, how, how do we do it? So that we wound up pitching a proposal where we said, okay, well, you know, we've got these droids in this kind of nebulous time period that could be, you know, it seems like probably before the events of Star Wars A New Hope, but and they're on in a planetary system that has never been seen before in, you know, other Star Wars comics or cartoons. And we didn't do all that because we were thinking, oh, we want to leave our mark on the droids because of, like, all of the sort of odd restrictions about what we could do, what we couldn't do with these characters, because even at the time there was sort of some speculation that maybe George Lucas might be planning prequels, maybe, right, right, so that, right. so, so that we, we had to be very careful about, very thoughtful about what we came up with. Um, but even then, say, uh, uh, Dan Forslund and I, we essentially pitched six short story concepts, or like a, a, a concept for you know, the premise for each each of uh, the six issue stories for droids. Lucasfilm approved. I mean, that, and and that's when we sort of, that, it's like after that we could get to work. Uh, I would, um, Dan Forslund wound up writing scripts. I was the editor on them. Uh, we uh, hired pencilers and, I, I mean, the, the thing that's, that's I mean, it's, your, your question about, you know, who's in charge? Is it the writer? Is it the, like with, with a licensed title, Obviously, the licensor is maybe the, the, the boss on right, some right, level, right. but but that it, you know. But, but as far as organizing the comic and getting it done, if the editor is in a position to hire the creative talent to do the work, it's like yeah, the the it's sort. Of, but if if not if not the director, kind of like the organizer, right, the conductor, right, right. the yeah. referee. You know, there's it's like there's a lot. Of sort of juggling because usually the, the the creators are not working together in the same room. You've got a, a well, yeah. Wasn't a, Cam in Ireland? Well, at the time he was in, he was in. Uh, he moved to um, to Oregon. Yeah. Uh, he and his family. So that I think, you know, I, I can't remember just when that happened, but not long after I arrived at Dark Horse, that uh, Cam and his family spent two years there so uh which was great because he i mean i could visit visit him in his 
in, he was in California, I think in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, uh, again, this is all still pre-internet. So what are you on the phone trying to coordinate between a writer and an artist and, and then send it off to Lou? I mean, that's a lot of trafficking going on there and, and, and you know yeah well, so you're I mean, reading the story you're trying to make sure all the deadlines are being met and i mean right yeah, I mean, but, so that's the editor's job though yeah i mean the, the way the way i you know other editors maybe would do it differently the way i did it was um if it uh, you know it was a full script yeah. I, I, that i expected you know to, to see that the writer would provide a full script the script would go to the penciler right uh the penciler would then say fax in pencil pages or just i mean if, if, unless it, it depended on who um what uh sometimes the penciler would send the, the pages directly to me because then i would forward those pages to the letterer right and um but I mean, but even there, like I mean, something I learned kind of early on was that some pencilers were very good and thoughtful about leaving space for the speech balloons. Others would you know, draw a panel, and it would be a close-up of a face that was so close up. It's like, what am I going to do? Obscure the character's eyes yeah. or mouth yeah. or nose? You know, it's like there's no or. I guess, and even if I put a balloon, say that extends outside the panel to a neighboring panel, then I'm obscuring something in a neighboring panel. There were things, so I re- remember um, again because there were no rules to how to be an editor. I, I would, I would, I got to the point that I just insisted with pencilers. It's like, okay, if you're not doing this already, I expect you. To show me approximately where these balloons should go, you know, okay. like a, where, so, so that you know, just just a rough oval, um, so that uh, I know who, you know, so, and with a tail to it, so I know where who's talking. And when I would see those pages, even there, I could, I mean, I get a sense of um, the the flow of it. If I realize, okay, that speech balloon is uh, in the upper right of the panel and right. the second speech balloon is at the lower left but because and because of this composition and the way the heads are turned i'm going to read them in the wrong order i read from left to right i'm going to read that one at the bottom and it's not going to work for me i would make it so i would you know sometimes um what well, sometimes it wasn't just a matter of like flipping the artwork or restructuring it or even you know put, Shifting the balloons themselves, you know, you, yeah. Because I would, you know, that that I would see original art pages. A friend of mine sells original art, and I would see whole panels that were cut and rubber cemented together and moved around. And I was like, "What is this about?" And they would say, "Oh, sometimes the um, the editor would cut the panels up and move them around like a jigsaw puzzle, and, yeah. and 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 just to tell the story better, like an editor in a movie." When they get the film and they that they they put it together the the way they see it, I mean that's. Did you ever have somebody say how dare you like call you up and scream at you like how dare you change my art and touch it? Yes, yeah, yeah? I did. And and my my take and it's I, I can think of three times I mean, the, 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 where I mean there were people where creators were angry because. But what do you um, do though? I mean, the, the, let, let me just. 
I, no. Devils, they got paid to do a job. Their right. job is to draw this image. They did it. They sent it in. You paid them. You own the artwork, technically, right? The company does. Well, the licensor. Yeah. So I mean, they really in that situation when it's a licensed book, they really have no say in it, right? Um, they really don't. I mean, they can be. They could be angry with me, and. But that, the thing that I, I tried to emphasize each time was like, look, I didn't do the, I, I didn't make a change arbitrarily. Right. And I didn't, it was thought out. It wasn't just, hap, you know. Yeah, you know, there, there, was, well, there was a reason for it. Right. And, there, and usually the reason had to do with legibility or just, you know, just how, how does this thing read? And what, whether it's the picture well, did, or, did, did, To get some drama, did you ever have like screaming matches with people on the phone about things? Uh, how how upset with it? Get? I I I don't remember myself ever doing the screaming, but yeah, I mean, I got I got yelled at. Um, there, Without there naming was, names, just you know, like I said, there was one. There was one writer who, um, what be, I mean, who was very prone to putting in captions on 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 like just every single page was riddled with omniscient narration captions, right? And as objectively as I could try to say it, I, I, I sent a letter. And there, there, there was not, it was it had it had to do well. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't just the captions. It was also sort of the editorial process that this particular writer was essentially bypassing Dark Horse's editorial department by sending scripts directly to a contact at Lucasfilm, huh. and. Um, so that I, I mean, I, where, where I just, I was looking at these comments like, wait, who, uh, this is, this was a project that I inherited. I mean, yeah. I, I, I did not, and so another editor had been working on it. I got the, like, it's like, okay, writer, you're going to be working on this series now. I was like, okay. And I'm looking at the material and just, so like, what, she's like, what, I, why, what, what, what ha-? like, apparently these comics are just getting published and like, as far as who's editing them. I guess Lucasfilm is just sort of signing off because they look at these things and they think, yeah, looks good to us. Right. And I thought, you know, these really would be a lot, the storytelling, like just like eliminating most, if not all of these captions. And, it, and did it affect it, the story, though, for the reader? No it, no, it really didn't because the captions were, for the most part, redundant things like, um, Bob picked. Bob picked, uh, picked up a rake, and you could see the image of the guy picking up the rake. You didn't have to yeah, say it. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Or uh, it's like uh, looking up from the table, he saw a mysterious figure in the doorway. Right, just draw you know, the picture. Think, yeah, it was things like that where it's like, how you know? It's like I can see that very clearly without any need. Well, for what was the guy's rationale or the woman's rationale for it? I mean, didn't they trust the image that the you know the drawing wasn't telling the story enough? Um, whatever. Sounds like an insecurity what, thing, if you ask me. Could have been. I don't know. But what the 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 the, uh, the, the writer yeah. the writer uh, did his very best to take me off the book. Really? Uh, yeah. Who? I mean, just like he. he uh, um. Oh gosh. He he wound up. Sent, I mean, it was like the day after I sent. I mean, I, because I, I just sent him. An, uh, I think a faxed a message saying. Hey, you know, I'm the new editor on this. Yeah. I have some observations, and I need, you know, it's like I think that if you know, if, if we were to do it this way, 
just you know right. you're trying to collaborate title. you're trying to work together yeah right so the next day I, I arrive at the office and there was a uh, federal express priority overnight envelope on my desk and I opened it up and the writer had essentially I was cc'd on this message but the writer was writing to the heads of Dark Horse and also to Lucasfilm saying like, that uh, the, the writer could not believe how unprofessional I was. Wow. That, I mean, it was something he, he you know, just wanted me off the book. And this was like a, it was like a two-page rant. And I, I read it and it was like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow. Okay. Yeah, so then uh, uh, Mike Richardson, uh, president Ooh. of Dark Horse Comics, called me into his office because he, he got a copy of this letter and yeah. he said, this is really serious. Like, well, what do you, what do, what do you have to say about this? And I said, you know, I said, I, I, you know, I, 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 I think I've already shared at that point, like, you know, the letter that I wrote right, to right. the writer. But I said, I think what you want to really focus on here is the fact that this writer used, um, he sent this, his, his message via FedEx priority, priority overnight to, I think, at least eight different people. Uh-huh. And he billed Dark Horse's FedEx account. Oh, that. wow. And because I could see that on the message. I mean, it was just sort of clearly, I mean, I, I noticed that. And I said, you know, I said it really comes down to I am trying hard to, to you know, produce good comics and please the licensor. Yeah. And if this writer thinks that he does, it's like that I'm like just not worth working with. I'd say, you know, take me off the title. Yeah. Because, yeah. but I, but I, but I, I'd also, you know, as a warning, say I don't think he's worth the trouble. I mean, this, you know, this, guy, you know, it's like it's not you know, as far as behaving unprofessionally. Wow. You know, right. Like what, right. Right. What, yeah. So, so anyway. Well, no, that that that's an extreme situation. I don't think that's the yeah. norm. I mean, then I'm yeah. thinking in my head, how much did eight times those FedEx packages must have cost, like forty <laughs> or fifty bucks each? So, not on, on top of that, he stole from the company as well, in my opinion, because he just used their funds to for his anger fueled rant. Yeah, it was, you know? it was it was it was it, um, you know, but but I, I that's a bit uh, over the top. I would say that's not the normal situation an editor had us to deal with. No, but, no. no, I think. But I, but I think that, you know, as, as far as, like, you know, who's in charge? Is it the writer? Well, if the writer is a civil person, I'd be happy to let the writer... Well, know, no, I, the, the, there's the other know. thing, too. I mean, you worked with, I don't know if you personally worked with, but Dark Horse had a lot of what we would call legendary comic creators on a lot of those books. I remember Frank Miller did a RoboCop book. I know Walt Simonson did, like, Terminator meets, uh, not Alien, maybe Terminator meets Predator or Time co- or RoboCop or something like that. There was there were a, a lot co- of crossovers. There's yeah. a lot of crossovers with a lot of big name talents, and that might just intimidate an editor because, depending on their skill level, they might go, "Oh wow, I'm working with Walt Simonson. You know, he's you know a Thor legend. I'm not going to mess with him. Let him do carte blanche, whatever he wants. I mean, do you sometimes you just step out of the way? It's like, well, Spielberg's working on this movie. Who am I to edit Steven Spielberg? Let him do what he wants, but what if they go up overboard? What if it's like you, you have a prima donna on a project and everyone doesn't want to say anything and they're all looking around like, well, you know, it's so and so. We can't dare tell him how to do his job. I mean, did you ever have I, to to step up I, to the plate and say, "Excuse me, um, that's not how we do things here"? Frequently. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, there, there was. 
again, because um, I think honestly that's what's wrong with the modern comics. I think a lot of the books they have great writers, they have great artists, but I don't think there's anybody as a referee almost to get in there and say, "Hey, let's let's do this or let's change this." They kind of just don't want to rock the boat and mm-hmm. and and mess up what they have going because everything. I don't think people realize how comics work nowadays. I don't know how it was back then, but as far as I know, I think a writer's contracted to work on 20-something issues. They'll have an agent and just like almost like a ball player, they get a booking and they, they sign with the team and you know they're going to play for this many years or write this many books. And, and that's how it is, really. It's not just you punch a clock and you come into the office and you pick up a script. Because I would hear stories about the old days, like in the 60s and 70s, and the guys would walk into the, the offices at Marvel and any work today, Oh, yeah, we've got a couple of Western comics. Okay, and they'd pick up the script. They'd go home and draw some horses and cowboys and bring it back the next week. And that's how it used to be. But now it seems more like a very cut-and-dry creative process. Like, you know, you're hired to do 20 issues to write them, and that's just the way it is. I don't I don't think they have that old-school bullpen. No, they don't. I no. mean, it's... Yeah, it's it's very. I, I think it's it, it's. Um, I and I, I never worked on anything, any project that was twenty issues either. I mean, it was like most of almost everything I worked on was either a one shot or a mini series. Yeah, usually no more than six issues. So that it, yeah, it was. Um, so you weren't there when they were doing the. It wasn't Tales of the Jedi, but oh no, no, this was when the prequels came out. Yeah, you were gone by then because. I know John Ostrander came on with Jan Derisma, and they did a Star Wars series that was set in the old prequel era. That went on for got to be seventy issues or something like that. And yeah, the, or, right, or or maybe it was. It was called like Republic or Empire, and they would tell the story I, of the old Republic in Star Wars. Yeah, I, it's funny. With, with I mean, T- Tales of the Jedi evolved kind of the, like around the same time that Dan Forsman and I were developing droids that. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm well, to... I don't think those books really. It's I know they have successful Star Wars books, and they've done Indiana Jones books and stuff like that, but they don't really lend themselves. I think for a long ongoing story, because when you're dealing with the licensed character, and correct me if I'm wrong, you guys already know where that character is going to go. You can't tamper with it too much because it's not your property. It's like, well, Luke Skywalker's got to go A, B, and C, but he has to end up back at A right. because it, it, that's how the movies go. You can't make Luke suddenly become a, a bad Jedi and kill 20 people right. and do whatever because that's not right. that's not going to happen. I mean, they're going to call you up and say that's not the character you're, you're hired to write. So, yeah, but the, I mean, the, the, limit, the restrictions have more to do with maintaining continuity than anything else. I mean, if, if you... Um, it's. Uh, I mean, there's, there's. I think. I think there's a lot of creative opportunities, say, for doing a Luke Skywalker adventure. But what you have to do is sort of figure out. Okay, when does it take place? And, yeah. Um, and as far as, uh, yeah, you know, sure, you want to be true to the characters, but you can still put it, put those characters through their paces and do do. You know, you, you I would think do some interesting work. But yeah, the t- Tales of the Jedi. I, you know, I, I think well, that, that I know, one was set Tom, thousands Tom of Beach, years. And I think, I, yeah. yeah, and I think it was. I can't remember now. I, um, forgive me. I'm, I'm just drawing. I remember like, the book. It was called uh, Naomi San, Sunrider, and right, they had right. their own characters, and they were fighting like Darth 
crack, create, or whatever. It was set 10,000 well, years the, or something before. The thing, the thing that, yeah, the, and that, but the reason that, uh, uh, I mean, that, I, I'm pretty sure that that evolved from Tom Veach and his, uh, you know, for after, you know, for working on, while working on Dark Empire right. and maybe trying to figure out other opportunities, thought, you know, like with all, you know, Lucasfilm is saying you can't do this, you can't do that. Right. What if we do a story about ancient Jedi set thousands of years before the movies? Right. And so, so it, and that Lucasfilm didn't sign off on that overnight, but I guess it was just like when they, they realized, yeah, you know, there could be, as, as long as it doesn't dramatically affect things, that, but, uh, they thought, sure. My 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 only significant contribution to, to Tales of the Jedi was because uh, I, I don't I don't think I I don't recall editing any of those comics. That, right. But I, um, as sort of like an unofficial art director, as I became more involved in overseeing Star Wars, I said, okay, the past three issues of Tales of the Jedi, um, you know, I, I, I said. You need to put a lightsaber on the cover of every single comic, yeah. because if you don't, it's just it could look like Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> yeah, it I get like it. Something yeah. Else. You need a lightsaber. But the other rule is that um, at least every other issue, I want to see the tip of the lightsaber blade because we had three consecutive issues that looked like dueling flashlights. Right. You know, right. These, these close-up battles where. Or the, or you know, the, the the end of the lightsaber bleeds over the, the off the edge of the page, and I said, you know, it's like there's something about seeing the end of the lightsaber that right. <laughs> you know just makes it look like more well, not a flashlight. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I so so uh, yeah, I had I hadn't thought about that in years, Mitch. But yes, that was that was my input. For- well, I just jogged. You know what? And then I had a quick question too. The other day, I was talking about creative stuff. Say they were working on a Star Wars book and they came up with a character. The writer comes up with the character to tell it's a, it's a part of his story. The artist draws what he thinks the character should look like. Maybe he gets some input from the uh, writer. When it comes time to say who created that years later, say it became a hugely popular character. Who would the credit go to? Would it go to the writer who initially thought of the the character? Would it go to the artist who drew the visual of it? Or would it go to the editor who was on staff when that came up and approved everything? I mean, was there any, like, guidelines on on who owns what? Ultimately, with licensed properties, the licensor owns the the character. So So Lucasfilm would own no matter what they came up with? Every single character? Yes. Wow. So, so uh, and, and the same with uh, 20th Century Fox when I was working on Aliens. Aliens. I mean, yeah. if we created characters for Aliens. But it, but it, yeah, okay, but in your mind then, okay, forget it's a licensing. Wh- who do you think owns or could put their name to something? You know, well, I have a son. Like, I'm the I father. My wife's the, the, the mother. We made that kid, so we're both co-creators on that one. But yeah, in, in the I world of literature, who created something in your opinion? Uh, I, I, for, okay, for example, the Star Wars comic Shadows of the Empire. Yeah. Uh, Lucasfilm in their sort of like rough story plot for Shadows of the Empire, they indicated that the, uh, 
uh, Jabba the Hutt has a swoop gang. These, these, yeah. uh, these sort of biker gang. Biker gang, yep, I remember that. Right. And uh, John Wagner and Killian Plunkett, mm-hmm. the artist on, yeah. on Shadows of the Empire, they essentially, what, uh, John scripted um, two of the characters, there was uh, two of the bikers, or Big Giz and Spiker. Yeah, yep. And I remember reading the script, and it's like, wow, this wasn't in the Lucasfilm treatment. And right. when Killian drew them, it's like, wow, that's like this is pretty inventive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so that certainly, I you know, I would credit the creation of those two characters. I mean, just the, their their personalities, their appearance, everything. I give credit to um, John Wagner, Killian Plunkett. Do they have any ownership over those characters? No, no they don't. So, but but I, uh, but as, as far as uh, and they both um, John and Killian know this. I am so extremely fond of Big Giz and Spiker that I've included them in various books and comics that I've worked on uh-huh. because I just think those. It's like, oh my gosh, they're like you know they're they're, they're bikers on Tatooine. I mean, they're fun characters. So I. But I, yeah, I appreciate, I, you know, I, I greatly appreciated their contribution. But if, uh, and I, I, I think I've told you before too, like one of the first characters I created while working on the droids comics, where I created a, an assassin droid named C-3PX who looks just like 3PO. And um, I'm guessing it was maybe, oh, I don't know, 10 years ago or so that Hasbro produced um, a, a build a figure, a, yeah. To build a figure, so you could you know buy buy six different packages and you could assemble your own yep. C3PX. And at the time, I, I remember you know, like thinking, "Huh, that's kind of cool." And on the other hand, thinking, "I wish I had a piece of that." Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> but it's you know, but if the rule is it's you know, it's like I yeah, I I, I don't I don't. Get anything well, out I mean, oh, oh, but the, okay. In the hist- you obviously you know about comic book history. Do you ever hear those stories about oh, whoa, was uh, Joe Schuster and and Joe Simon or Siegel? I'm sorry, and sure. they came up with Superman, but they saw I'm the very ra- familiar. Yeah, the, yeah, Jerry Siegel and Joe Simon. I meant to say or whatever. I'm, I'm all confused right now. But anyway, I'm thinking of Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. But, okay. you know, Simon and Schuster, the ones that made Superman, Siegel and Schuster, there Siegel we go, Schuster. Siegel and Schuster. Right. Uh, they came up with the character, but they were working for National Periodical, which becomes DC. But they don't own anything. So years, you know, they made DC Comics, made Superman, TV shows, radio shows, toys, movies, everything. The original two kids that thought of it don't get anything. Don't get a check, don't get anything. And it took years of legal problems and debates and fighting and courts and all that and and. You know, people protesting before these guys got some little stipend every year. What I mean, what are you? What do you think about that? I mean, what do you think about guys nowadays that come up with characters? Maybe that's why they don't give their best work to big corporations like Disney or, or Marvel or DC because they don't want to lose any potential profits that might come from a character. Because yeah, you know, I, if I, I'm 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 working for Marvel. I come up with a biker gang guy, and you know he's half vampire, half motorcycle guy, and it's a huge hit. And all the kids are wearing T-shirts, and all I got is my weekly paycheck. I mean, do you think that holds a lot of creators back because they're afraid to give the big corporations their uh, their creative talents? I don't think it holds enough of them back. Oh yeah, I, I, yeah. I think that there, there are so many. 
as artists and aspiring artists who just think simply, I'd love to work on Star Wars, or yeah. I'd love to work on um, Spider Man or Superman. So, yeah, yeah, they, yeah, they think I, I want uh, this is what I want to do, and but you know the the reality is that the conglomerates that own these characters, uh, they'll you know you'll you'll see the contract and you'll comprehend. It's like yeah, you, you know your contribution, you know you don't own this. You know, yeah. it's like, really clear so i mean i i think that uh you know what uh siegel and schuster got royally screwed yeah and yeah. that the, the fact that they had to battle for money the way they did over the years yeah. I, I think it's, it's just uh just a it's crushing when you, mm. when you and and you know the flip side is that you've got Bob Kane with Batman, right? Where, Taking well, credit he, he for drags stuff. Drags his yeah. dad in, and somehow he gets, you know, Batman created by Bob Kane. What does Bob Kane do? Well, we know he hires out, he Bill subcontracts Finger a writer, and, yeah. and he subcontracts a an artist, and he goes and plays golf. Yeah, and yeah. you know, and takes credit for years. Oh yeah. So that I, you know, where, where I think, you know, it's just, uh, but I, uh, um. So it comes down to who had the better lawyer, basically. Yeah, but it's also—it's also as far as going into it, and I mean, it, it's like it, when I when I do work for hire stuff, I know in advance those are the rules. In the in the late nineteen nineties, Dan Thorsland, um he left Dark Horse Comics and he went back to DC Comics, and I'd moved to New York. Killian Plunkett was visiting, and. Um, Killian and I had worked on various Star Wars projects together. We we go to meet Dan Thorsland in the offices at DC, and he said, "He said you guys really like robots. Why don't you two create your own giant monster robot comic?" And Killian and I looked at each other like, "What?" Yeah. And we, but we also thought, well, it's kind of it's an invitation. Maybe we can do something. And so Killian and I uh, wound up developing a four issue story and um it was uh uh uh, dc did publish it the title it was trouble magnet but what was funny was that i mean we sent in the proposal and we got a um i guess a letter in the mail or including a check from dc's legal department saying to each of us thank you for developing this character here's five hundred dollars for each of you for you know, buying all you know rights and searching the and we and Kelly and I we, we were just like, what? We and we get we get on the phone and talk to each other and say, hey, hey, that's not the deal. We're the creators of this thing. This is not a DC comic. Right. So the attorney who sent out the message said to us, well, then you know if you don't agree to do that, then we're just not going to publish it. And I said, oh wow. Well, that, and I said, fine, we'll take it to somebody else. Yeah. And what happened was. Like it was very screwy, but that DC Comics published Trouble Magnet, and the, as the Indicia shows, it's like it, it, Killian and I retained the copyright on that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was a, it, but that it was a critic's darling. It sold miserably. Right. <laughs> and we, uh, you know, it was it was which was in itself kind of crushing because we thought, well, I guess it just kind of got lost in a heap of. Like the fact that it wasn't a DC actual DC yeah, yeah, character yeah. that they didn't it was it was uh, uh but but the, the 
the fact remains, I, I felt, um, you know, I, I, I didn't go into that thinking, oh yeah, I'd love to give this, have this appear in DC and you know, profit from it for years afterwards. Cause I thought, you know, I, based on what I know and what not know, it's like, I, this is a creator owned story. We did not create this as, you know, some spinoff for DC comics. I mean, it was like a self. Well, did you think, story. look, did you think because they didn't own it, they didn't uh, market it and publicize it that much because they weren't going to reap the benefits? Is that anything I know to do that with for a, I know that for a fact, Mitch. Oh, all right. I was just thinking that once you said that they didn't know, yeah. they're probably like, hey, why are we promoting this? We're not getting a cut. Yeah. No, there was like sort of like one one sort of flub after another where I thought, okay, they really aren't trying too hard at all here. So, uh-huh. yeah. Anyway. Anyway, well, that, that was interesting too. I'm going to, I'm way over time here, but real quick. What do you think about, because you're a big movie fan too, what do you think about the recent comments from Martin Scorsese about the Marvel films aren't cinema? What do you think about that? Is this valid compliment? Or? Yes and no. I, I, I think I think his use of the word cinema as sort of the, the film industry equivalent to literature is more than a little pretentious. And okay. I, it's like, okay, no, I, I, don't, I think that to say like, Oh, these are these are these are popcorn movies as opposed to cinema, and I think well, you know, it's like I like genre fiction. I'm like I'm not, you know, and sometimes it's it's. Uh, but I but on the other hand, I mean, it's like reading all. I did read his his full, all of his comments, and that it's, it's you know I I understand like if he is not emotionally or and intellectually engaged by a superhero movie. Mm-hmm. I think I get that. Not all of them, you know, there's a lot of them that really won't grab you that right, way. That's, right, right, okay. Right. I get that. And, and if he, if he chooses not to watch them, it's like, I understand that too. But the point that he makes about how these, uh, big budget tent pole movies, how they've really squeezed out, um, possibilities for lower budget, more say intimate personal human right. movies he's got a point there i mean just when you i i uh it's, it's before it's funny just before he like i, I he made those comments was just a few weeks ago on netflix i, I saw oh alice doesn't live here anymore oh, I, I remember that, that movie yeah. in decades and i and i and i watched it and was just sort of like all over reminded like wow you know he it was it, it's it's such a great it's not just a, not, That's not just Jill a Claiborne, book, right? It's just like it's a, it's a really you know I don't know somehow yeah. I found it compelling. I found it you know it's like the characters were were, were fascinating. I think you know it, it, I'm not sure, but it seems like it was one of his first movies that yeah, didn't involve yeah. crime. Also, yeah. it was just it was yeah just a so no I, I mean I, I admire him as a filmmaker. As for his comments. I, 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 you know, I, I kind of understand it on some level. I mean, his, his grumble has to do with, you know, you think about, there's, there are a lot of, uh, you know, David Lynch, John yeah. Waters, uh, John Carpenter, lots of directors who just don't do movies anymore mm-hmm. or theatrical releases like they probably, you know, I wish they were. Well, because it's a business. I mean, you don't, yeah, you're not going to have yeah, a yeah. studio that says, hey, we're not going to give you $60 million unless we can get a return, you know. That's well, the, it's more like that. You no, know, it's like we'll give you a 
hundred million if you can deliver a blockbuster, but yeah. we're not going to give you ten million for sh- nothing. You know, it's yeah. it's, it's uh, so that's that's well, that I, I did the, the whole Scorsese thing. I just it, there was a lot of hypocrisy going in that because that was a mo- the new movie Joker. He's a producer on that film, mm-hmm. so I'm like, wait a second, you're just regarding all these comic book movies yet you're involved with one of them that only cost 60 million to make and last i checked made a billion dollars in the box office so what's that about and then the funnier thing is everyone said oh it's just like a updated version of martin scorsese's uh taxi driver except it's done with a clown face so i went and watched taxi driver and i haven't seen that movie in about 40 years but i sat down it was on netflix and i watched it from beginning to end i go oh yeah i could see that so maybe some of these look i was inspired by star wars and raiders lost art to go seek out akira kurosara films uh looked all the old serials i became a fan of all the old uh, republic serials because of raiders lost Ark. i started reading james bond novels because spielberg and lucas were saying they couldn't get the rights to james bond so that's why they came up with indiana jones so i went and started reading ian fleming novels there's a lot to be said about these quote-unquote superhero movies because they inspire people to become writers and directors and special effects artists and maybe illustrators and you shouldn't just dismiss a whole genre about because you never know i mean look at we just talked about comic books for an hour and a half here a spot star wars was popcorn movie in 1977 but think of all the people that you know it gave you a career for five years as the editor on these books you can't just relegate it's almost like music i was so mad i was like that's like saying well the beatles aren't real music real music is mozart and beethoven like what no what what do you yeah but the thing that i think um what Oh yeah, I remember. Numerous movie theaters. It was like it was held over, held over, held over. Yeah. And that, you know, now, but but like I think you know, I've been aware that since the late 1990s or so, the way, um, just what uh, box office results or the focus on that, and the way the movie industry works, it comes down to you know they. You know they might they can do their test screenings, but that you know that opening weekend, yeah, yeah. they've already pretty much determined whether this movie will be a success right. or not, and they're making plans for releasing it on home video. Oh yeah, they know yeah. they know for a fact this movie is not going to be in this theater for probably more than six weeks tops. Oh yeah, you know, there's, yeah. There's, there's just no. It's like because there's a whole bunch of other movies that are going to be... Yeah, there's only, shelf, almost, yeah, so, only so, so much shelf space, you know? Yeah, so I think, you know, it's... Uh, uh, yeah, as, as far as how industry has changed, I mean, Martin Scorsese could also, you know, complain about um, how digital streaming movies and home video yeah. services keeps people out of theaters. My right. own take on that is that, you know... Last time I went to a theater was in 2015, and every time I saw some idiot igniting an iPhone yeah. or a smartphone in the audience, I thought, I can't go, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. No, <laughs> I know, sat, I, I sat through. Um, 
I can't remember which one, one of the big Marvel movies or whatever. And there was a kid next to me, literally on his phone for the entire two hours. I was like, why are you here? Why are you even sitting here? Why did you buy a ticket? And he would cover the, you know, try to cover the light. But, you know, the corner of your eye, you keep seeing this light and your eyes just shift over. Like, what's what's that about? Why, you know, why am I looking at this glowing thing next to me? And I tapped him on the shoulder. I said, could you please put that away? It's very distracting. Well, I paid a ticket. Then go sit out in the lobby because you're not watching the movie. It made no sense. Yeah. Why? And he was like probably in his teens, like 18, 17. And I'm like, wow, that's a whole other conversation about the art of sitting in a dark room with a bunch of strangers watching a movie together because they're watching their phones. I don't even know why they would bother going to a movie because they don't right. seem to care about any of it, you know? My, 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 uh, this, this has happened a couple of times. We're cranky years. old men now. You do realize. Very that. cranky. And I, so I just I thought, you know, it's better for my nervous system if I just stay home, because it's, it's like the idea of going like uh, going to an empty theater. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of almost appealing. But yeah. I, 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 but just like all it's going to take is one person like lifting an iPhone, and I lose it. I oh just, yeah, I, yeah. No. Kind of, yep, I, I can't. I, it's too distracting. No, I actually do enjoy going to an empty theater. Like I'll catch a movie like on the Monday after it opens when no one's there at ten in the morning because I can actually watch the movie. You know, right. But, so I still like that. All right. Well, I've gone through all my questions. The last thing, uh, negativity. Oh, speaking of the same thing, what do you think about uh, when people write reviews of movies and kill it before it has a chance to go? We just talked about that. A movie opens on a Friday, but there's already a huge backlash because a handful of people have saw it, or maybe they haven't even seen the movie, but they're already shooting it down saying, hey, this is horrible. This is horrible. And that movie just becomes a box office bomb. What do you What do you think about that? Do you think people should just disregard that and make up their own opinion, or that's not the world we live in anymore? I um, I'm sad to say we don't live in that world anymore. But that it's I, you know the, the the problem with technology, uh, say from the internet to cell phones to home computers. I mean, just is that this. You know the, the uh, what um, the cartels dump this stuff on, yeah. and then they leave us to figure out the etiquette. Yeah, and so that you know just because somebody can tweet from within a movie theater, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. Like, or what compels you to do that and share that? And I, it, it seems um, well because everyone thinks their opinion matters. Well, it does, yeah. but. No, it doesn't. No. No, really? Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think, I mean, I think as far as like, you know. A, what, Maybe a qualified an, opinion? No, or an informed opinion. An informed or, opinion, say, okay. Like a, a critic, but like if, if it's, if it's uh, you know, just, oh gosh, like. You know, but don't you think that's what's happened though? That's what the whole social media has made everybody important? Um, and you got to be careful how you say this because you don't want to ever say, well, that person has more value than that person. But maybe when it comes to opinion, say Siskel and Ebert, when they used to be around, these are guys that that was their job to review movies and write about movies. And they okay. did this well, okay. 24-7. Okay. In that case, I'll, you know, let's name names. Okay. Here. Like, okay with, with Roger Ebert, um, I was an enormous fan of his writing. I mean, yeah. the way he, he could, he would tell you about a movie and sort, sort of give you like some some information and usually I mean, very often say uh you know he would do it without spoilers he would right, do it yeah, without yeah. um it was sort of informative without being 
revealing and yet uh, well, I don't think was, putting spoilers is really a movie review. I just think that's someone who's trying to ruin it for someone. Okay, I, but yeah. then, then then it's like I refused to read movie reviews in the New Yorker. Because they would tell the whole plot? Because they will tell you um, the ending. They will tell you who dies. They will tell you when. It's, it's, it's sort of, it seems like, what the hell? I mean, yeah. you know, where it's, well, that's it's not, not a review. That's really just filling. Uh, well, they know it's a review. Space. It's it's a review, and it's usually you know kind of you know a snooty review. <laughs> but I, I yeah I I think um, that uh, uh, yeah I I I I mean they're, they're uh, I, I mean generally you know you, you can you know look up a movie and sort of figure out in advance maybe. Right. Like, you're like I prefer not to know anything about a movie that I want to see. Yeah. And so, like, I'll even avoid watching trailers. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. I've been like, spoiled by trailers. Yeah, I just want yeah. to see the movie just really fresh. Yeah. But uh, but as far as, like, um, you know, the, the internet or, or, you know, what like, why uh, does everybody feel compelled to... Um, Ruin like, everything? Yeah, be a critic, or not just that, but also just you know uh, things like you know, oh, shaming actors because of their appearance. Yeah, because, you know, yeah. things where it's like I, I don't understand it. I wish, uh, I wish people in general could just be more civil and also you know think like yeah, uh, you know your your words can hurt, right. and it's uh, and and in a lot of cases, it's unfounded. Uh, if, well, you I mean, live in a you live in a country right now, and you get political where the president insults people <laughs> left and right. You're like, wait, what the hell? You know? Yeah, yeah, right. Well, so yeah. Um, well, you that, know, that, learn by example. People go, well, it's okay for him to do it, so I guess I can do it too. So, right. Yeah, I. I we have really gone on. A I know we have. I know, and I appreciate your time <laughs> and stuff. But no, I just. I, I don't, I can't, I, like, I go to review movies because I get hired by the local radio station to do it every couple mm-hmm. weeks when there's a genre movie, if it's science fiction or a superhero thing. And I always avoid, they always want me to do, like, hey, how's it end? Does this guy get killed? And I, I go, I'm not going to tell you. And I, I go out of my way not to spoil it for somebody else. I go, well, it was very action. There was great sequences in there. This was well made. The acting's really superb. And I don't get into it. But the guys that host the show, they're shock jocks, quote unquote. And they love like, so does this guy get killed? Are they going to do another one? Because he's dead. He sucks. Why? How fat did he get? Or how old looking? I'm like, why are you doing that? But that's their quote unquote humor. So, I mean, going on the show, you know what you're going to get into. But yeah. That that pay they they get ratings. People must enjoy it. I don't I don't understand it, but yeah, I I, I don't either. I mean, I, I think uh, you know just just I mean er, earlier back yeah. to comics when I you know I was saying you know like yes I get angry if I read a comic and I read the speech balloons in an order that is you know somehow wrong because I realize oh I read the I read the answer before I read the question yeah yes yeah. exchange of dialogue and. I think that it's definitely what it's is it is that um, grounds for like for me to be critical and analyze and say yeah it could have been improved by doing it this way, but does it mean that I say like you know off with their heads or yeah. <laughs> you know it's like it's not it's it's yeah just um, I think you know it, it's uh, it's you know for for everything that I've said to probably the first to admit uh, that. 
I'm not Mr. Know-it-all and that I benefit from editors. Yeah. That, you know, when, I, when I'm working on projects that, when you, you know, any, any what, creator, whether you're a writer, uh, artist, working on something, you can get myopic, you can, you know, or oh, yeah, yeah, tunnel, yeah. tunnel vision, and yeah. sometimes it helps if you just get up and walk away from a project and come back and look at it, it's like, oh yeah, I, I should do something different. But even then, it's like having an objective person that you trust, whose opinion you value, who, who says, and this, and this has happened with me, where it's like someone says, you know, writer, you know, this character saying this right here, I don't think that really rings true. And it's like, huh, jeez, hmm, you know, now that you mention it, okay. Oh, yeah, no, I always I, think you need a fresh set of eyes on anything, yeah, really, you know. Sure. Because it puts you in perspective or gives you a new perspective on what it is. But anyway, yep. buddy. Um, it's way over an hour and, uh, thanks for your time. You know. It was a pleasure. It was. Yeah. No, I, I mean, come back anytime. Cause I love, this is stuff where people ask me, they go, Oh, you, you know, so many people that work in comics and, and movies and TV. What do you talk about? I go, you'd be surprised. It's really just common stuff. Like, Hey, how do you do your job? And I'm, I'm always fascinated by that, you know? So thanks for letting me know what you did. And then we didn't even talk about your writing. And how you go to write a story and how long it takes and, and oh, where do you get your ideas. We'll save that for another conversation. Yeah, now. that one would be a, an epic miniseries, really. It's okay. like, writer, how did you get that story? Well, I had to pay the electric bill that month and it just happened. Oh, okay. Very frequently that's kind of how it goes, yeah. Just, <laughs> you know, it's, I, it usually, you know, it's like, where did you get the idea for this? It's like, well, because an editor contacted me and said, are you interested and available and working on this? And it's like, well, what's the deadline? How yeah, much no, no, pay? no, I get it. I know, I remember... Uh, Years ago, I used to do stuff and work in commercial art, and people were like, why'd you do that? I go, because I had a mortgage to pay. Oh, okay. You'd be surprised how uh, bill collectors suddenly make you want to create very yeah. quickly. You know, Be productive. Be yeah. productive. That's the way to put it, yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, thanks a lot, buddy. This is going to be on even my show, and I'm going to send it over to Ed for the IndieCast. So you're gonna see, this is going to be on two podcasts. You're going to be around the world more than enough. So, oh, boy. <laughs> oh, boy. Anyway, well, thanks again, Ryder. Uh, anything what you're working on right now? Any books that are on the bookstores? I saw your Stormtrooper book last night at Barnes & Noble. It, it was in the bargain section, but it was still Ryder Wyndham's book. Yeah, that, that sounds... I, I have a, a new book that I think I think it, it has just shipped. It's uh, the Rebel Star, Wa Star Wars Rebel Starfighters Owner's Workshop Manual, and it's by Haynes Publishing, and it's uh, the artists are Chris Reif and Chris Trevis, and we've worked oh, on yeah. a bunch of these technical manuals together. And Chris I, does those great cutaway things, so you can see like yes. inside the ships and stuff. Yeah, yeah. he's so, great. Um, and and as far as sort of like uh, what a. Uh, uh, as soon as the artists found out, they, they spotted a, an advanced poster for uh, the rise of Skywalker. And yeah. on the advanced poster, this was months ago, they, they noticed, oh, there's a Y-wing on there. Yeah, there is. It has yeah. a Y-wing. And it was really funny because they, they said, like, oh, we've got to include that in our Rebel Starfighters book. And I, my attitude was, hey, if Lucasfilm provides us with the information on time, great. But if not, we have to get this thing to the printer right, you know, right. by a certain date. And uh, they were they were very tenacious. If, if it weren't for uh, Chris Travis and Chris Rice, 
if it had been up to me, it's like, oh, come, this is just taking too long. But yeah. that they, you know, the the, the, the rebel, the, the resistance Y wing is in the book, and um, a lot, lots of other things. It was it was a fun project. So I, I, I and that's I, out I, now or just before? I think you know if if it's not, I, I forget that. I think it's already out in the UK, mm-hmm. uh, and I I'm pretty sure if it's not out, I think it comes out this week. It, it, well, I'm sure they're going to get it out before the film opens on December 20th. So yes, it will be out before the so so uh, that's that's the latest. It's a nice holiday gift for your Star Wars fan. Absolutely. There yeah. You go. And then after that, you'll be doing Indiana Jones Five, I'm sure. Yeah, it'll part of it's set in Vietnam. But it's got to be. I mean, he's going to be 70 yeah. something years old. I mean, it's got to be in the late 60s. This next yep. movie, it's, it has to be. So. You know. We'll right. find out. Do you went real quick? Do you think it's going to happen or not? Um, I don't know. You know, I, really? It, it, yeah. I, as far as you know, the, the, the speculations of, um, I mean, even oh gosh, uh, just recently, I, I, uh, someone that was asking me, like, you know, so what's going to happen with Star Wars movies after the rise of Skywalker? I said, I really don't know. Well, what do you think it's going to be? It's like. I don't have that kind of time. Yeah, <laughs> no, no. Like, I think they're. Yeah, actually, I, I think if it happens, that's great. But if it, but I, I, I can't at this point. I'm not holding my breath. No, I, I think they're going to walk away for a while. I really. Well, they got this new TV show I just watched yesterday, The Mandalorian. Very, I liked it. It was very well done, but it was only 38 minutes, so it was a small dose. I'm like, oh, I could deal with this. This is fine. Like you know, one-off stories are cool. You know. Yes. You don't yeah. need. You don't always have to have an epic. Tale, a little adventure story that's you know an hour distraction and that's good enough. Walk away. I agree. All right, all right, Ryder. I'm gonna say goodbye there. <laughs> okay, goodbye, Mitch. Good- Thanks again. Goodbye, Ryder. Thank you. This has been a production of Big Fedora Marketing LLC, the folks that bring you the terrific Comic Con, GamerCon, and so much more. Thanks for listening.